From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep. We dive deep into our Catholic faith. I'm Andrew Hansen, along with Amber Servany and Father Chris House, our three co-hosts, I guess, but a special, special guest, Father Marty Smith from Jerseyville, making the trek up. Earlier, you were making fun. If you're listening on the podcast, I'll explain it to you. I have an iPhone 5. I think it's an S. Father House was hating on it. Oh, whatever. <laughs> What's wrong? It makes phone calls. It can text. Internet's a little slow. It takes pictures. And you said I'm like some ancient guy. Well, yeah, but it, I'm also it? the same one that says I remember when phones were simply phones. And I say if I want to take a picture, I'll use a camera. And now it's you know, hate, everything. Hating on my iPhone. Unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Your purgatory will be less because you're dealing with me. See, I'm a you blessing. I am a blessing to you, Father House, in all its glory. Anyway. Ten things Why are we here? Ten things you didn't know about the Mass. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, Father House has come up with an interesting list. Uh, these are things that I uh, hope you find uh, you didn't know about the Mass. So what's next? Number one. What was the original liturgical language of the church? I love how I'm being asked that even though I wrote the list. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a lot of people will think the original language was Latin, but actually it wasn't. The original language was Greek. So that was uh, the language, the the normative cultural language around, kind of the binding thing left over from Greek influence. And then it switched to Latin when, of course, the Roman Empire was there, but when Christianity became legalized and then became the state religion. So that's we have this transover from Greek to Latin. So we have the we have the Latin Mass right now, is what it's called. Is there any like Greek Mass out there? Yeah, in Greece. I don't know. I don't know if there's, yeah, I don't know if there's any like you know. We like, for example, you can go to Latin Mass in Springfield. I don't know if there was if there was like a Greek Greek Mass in the U.S. or something like that with the old the old old form, I guess. Well, and it would have been well. You you still have it places that would celebrate uh, the Divine Liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, things like that. So. We could have a whole podcast on the variations within the church from the west to the east, how there's 24 churches. We're one of the 24, the Latin church, and you have 23 in the east. And we'll probably stop there because it will get more and more confusing, <laughs> you know, especially for me. I'll get lost in it. But uh, Either yeah. of you know Latin? Um, I know some words in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I, uh, I can't by any means read it or... You got nothing. No. All right. Do you think that when they changed the language that it was like a few years ago when they made the change of the mass and there was like a huge upheaval and everyone's like, why are we doing this? And it's terrible that like when they did this in the time, the Catholics were like, oh my gosh, this is a nightmare going from Greek to Latin. Well, you know, what's funny is because it's, you know, when, when Latin came in, they said, we're going to use the vernacular, the language of the people, which was Latin, mm-hmm. not Greek. And so the vernacular is always whatever the language of the people is. There was a time when Latin was the vernacular. So I don't know. Um, I don't know. People, That's just a can of worms. People love to complain. Right I'm sure people were complaining because people love to complain. That's yeah. what, <laughs> all right. Ten things you didn't know about the mass. What's next? Number two. Does every vestment worn by a deacon or priest have symbolic value? <laughs> yes, I just find it interesting that I'm being asked this. So, yes, um, they they have symbolic value, um, and to a certain degree, they had practical value for some of them at one time. So, you know, the base vestment for the ordained, really for all the baptized, you could say, is the alb. So, the long white robe. So, it comes from the Latin word for white. So, that's the alb, and then 
the cincture cord, the rope that's worn around the waist, which is technically optional, but many make use of it still. I know I do. Father Marty does. Um, it's symbolic for purity. So, and actually all these vestments have prayers that are not, they used to be required. Uh, many priests, deacons pray them still, even though they're not required out of devotion. So the prayer for that is, you know, for, for purity. Okay. And then there is the stole, which for the priest is worn over both shoulders, the scarf-like looking vestment. For a deacon, it's worn from the left shoulder to the right hip in a sash style. Um, and that is symbolic of the office. So it used to be that a Roman judge, a magistrate, would wear a stole as a sign of his office when he sat in judgment. And then finally, for the priest, the outer vestment is the chasuble, which means little house. It actually was hmm. a garment worn by uh, people out in the fields to keep them warm at one time. So it had a very practical use, but it was actually then adapted for liturgical use. And so that's a symbolic of charity. And deacons, they wear a dalmatic, which would resemble a chasuble to a certain degree, except it has sleeves, where a chasuble is more like a, I want to say a poncho style. So the dalmatic has sleeves from Dalmatia in ancient Greece. And uh, the dalmatic is symbolic of joy. So, and for a bishop, he wears all those things for the most solemn occasions. So he will actually wear the deacon's dalmatic underneath of the priest's chasuble. And of course, then a bishop wears a mitre for when he says mass, and the mitre is supposed to be in the shape of the flame as like the Holy Spirit that came down upon the apostles. And then the two bands that drape down, we call lappets. Those are symbolic of the two testaments of the scriptures. Hmm. That's a lot of symbolism. Now, I remember seeing a picture of Father Rob Johnson, who is one of our priests. Uh, I think it was his first mass, and his vestment had uh, some deer antlers on there. Because <laughs> <laughs> I helped him find that, actually. Because he's a hunter. So, right. so uh, Well, it's because of St. Hubert. It's St. Hubert. But he's also a hunter. Right. He's the patron saint of hunters of okay. St. Hubert. Yeah, so it wasn't just— So do you two have vestments that, that have—I'll call it some of that symbolism of maybe uh, tying in our Catholic— identity along with maybe something, you know, that's also close to them? Well, a lot of times they do, vestments have symbols on them. Um, We used to have, our diocesan vestments used to have our diocesan coat of arms on the back. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, different, it depends on style, taste, all that stuff. I mean, some will argue you shouldn't put symbols on a vestment because the vestment itself is a symbol. That's one school of thought. There's another school of thought that says that's crazy and load it up or whatever. So do you you have anything, Father Marty? I I, I believe I have one, uh, a St. Martin of Tours uh, chasuble that I I sometimes wear on on November 11th on his uh, feast day. And St. Martin uh, is very special to me, obviously, because that's who I'm named after. But he was a a soldier who later became a priest and then a bishop. And so I think that's the only one I have. So you have a gun on your vestment? No, I'm uh, Yeah. (laughs) A sword. Yeah. But... uh, Yes, I think that's the only one, and it's just it's just the image of Martin on his horse with the sword cutting his cloak. That's cool. But um, I think most of my other ones are just the liturgical colors that correspond, of course, to the the liturgical seasons throughout the year. So purple during Advent and and Lent, and green during ordinary time. And how many colors total? Oh my gosh! Well, <laughs> if you count, yeah. So you yeah. okay? You're gonna have like uh, purple, white. Red and green are going to be the ones you're going to see the most often. Uh, so the red we wear on uh, days we celebrate uh, Mass for the, a martyr, someone who gave up their life for the faith. Um, or the Holy know, Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Um, 
We, uh, the, the green is what we wear throughout ordinary time, what we call ferial days or, uh, on Sundays of ordinary time where there might like on a weekday mass, if there's not a specific saint that you're celebrating that mass for, but you're just celebrating the, the daily mass, you, you can wear green. Green's a color for hope and new life. Then we have white that we wear like during the Christmas season and the Easter season. So after we've, you know, uh, and also you may see like on Easter or Christmas gold, which is essentially white right. and liturgical colors. Um, commemoration of saints who were virgins, confessors, holy men and women. And white can always be used. White can always be substituted for any color. I say, have you guys ever worn the wrong color? Yes, I did it. Um, the, uh, so I don't know if any of my parishioners ever caught on to this one time, but I didn't realize it myself until I was halfway up processing for the mass on a Sunday mass. And so like, uh, I, uh, I, I, I waited till I got in there. I did the opening prayer and then when everybody sat down uh, for the reading to start, I made a quick cut to the sacristy and then came back out with a different, uh, I don't know if they thought I was having a wardrobe change for, uh, for dramatic effect or something, but uh, that I didn't do. Yeah, <laughs> I just went through it. But, yeah, luckily I have the sacristy right there. So, uh, but yeah, I love it. You're committed to the. Co- so when you're walking down, you're like, oh, I, I, I realized I, I was like, I just grabbed because uh, it was one of those things where I, I had worn this particular color the day before, and so it was right there, and I grabbed it and put it on, and then uh, didn't didn't dawn on me. So that's only happened once. So. And then we have violet for penitential times, <laughs> and then there's also rose. On Gaudete and Laetare Sunday. And then black is also a liturgical color that people Ooh, think was that, abrogated, but it wasn't. I don't know if I've ever seen that. All Souls Day, November 2nd, and then funerals. Funerals can always be white or violet or black. You always have the I don't option. Know if I've ever seen a black vestment. Amber, do you? Uh, no. And then blue in one country. Anybody know what country? Mm. Spain has, the, uh, has an indult or an ancient custom of being allowed to use blue. With Blessed Mother. We wear, have vestments with blue on them, but we can't wear solid blue. Very fascinating. All right. Yeah. 10 things you didn't know about the mass. What's next? <laughs> Number three. Do the bells at mass have both a practical use and a sacred? Yes, they do. So there was a time when, uh, in the, when the mass was in Latin or when the mass also was in the, what we now call the extraordinary form or what I call the Tridentine rite. When it was a very common thing for the priest would be offering the sacrifice at the altar and the faithful, especially in larger churches, would be out in the pews, maybe doing their own devotions, praying the rosary, whatever else, their own prayers. The bell strikes for a way to get your attention. Wake up. Exactly. Jesus is coming. Exactly. So one strike for the calling down of the whole, well, back then the bells would have been rung differently. So, when when, the, when is the altar server supposed to ring it? Is there is there a word? What's well, the trick is to follow the hand gestures. Oh, so, it's the hand gestures. Okay. So when the priest brings his hands out for what we call the epiclesis, the coin down of the spirit. So one strike and then. When they're late, are you, when you're putting your hands over, are you in your head of like, strike the bells, strike the bells? Sometimes. Yes. <laughs> I, I tap my foot. Like if I, I'll be like this and they haven't done it. I'll be like. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll see my foot and then they'll be like, oh. oh yeah. yeah. It's amazing though how bells have made a comeback mm-hmm. and really yeah. about the past 15 years and that. So, but uh, today they're more, it's a devotional thing. It's a notion of tr- uh, tradition. But, you know, one thing I know some parents have done, which I think is awesome with their little ones, is they'll teach them, you know, when you hear the bells, Jesus is going to be present. Or when you hear the one time, Jesus is coming. And then when you hear it rung three times, Jesus is present consecration of the host, 
in the chalice. So it's some parents have done that. I always think that's very neat. Is it three times representing the Trinity? It, it's, it's custom. And some, I mean, some will say three, some say just one. There's no definitive rubric. And I, I say that and somebody's going to go out there and find something mm. obscure probably. But, uh, <laughs> but so that's the moment. <laughs> that's what they sound like? Yeah, that's usually when they come with their little document. Um, but so three rings is the moment that you recognize as being the moment it transfigures. For the consecration, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I was an altar server, uh, my brother and I would serve the same mass every single Sunday, and we'd have the same roles every single Sunday, except for who rang the bells. So our little thing was after we would uh, dress the altar, we'd go we'd go into the side chapel like you, and we'd play a quick, not one game, but three game series of paper, scissors, rock. I oh, call okay. it paper, scissors, rock. Rock, paper, scissors. And whoever lost had to ring the bells. <laughs> Oh, oh, had to lost? ring the bells. Probably lost had to ring the bells oh, because you're so because worried of the about pressure. messing it up. Yeah, it was the pressure of like <laughs> it could be a know, lot of uh, you know when do I do it? Uh, did I screw that up? So well, the trick so is the law, with, yeah, loser the, had a ring. The first Eucharistic prayer, of the Roman Canon, has a curveball, and so that's where you kind of find your seasoned servers because <laughs> there's a point at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer where the priest blesses the the elements, but it's not the epiclesis. So sometimes because with all the other Eucharistic prayers, we put our hands out and then we make the sign of the cross over the offerings of the Epiclesis. Those two are separated in the Roman canon. So that's yeah. how you know your, your server who's, yeah. Yeah. who's seasoned. Who I don't know if I would see. I was not, probably when, uh, not an all-star server then. That's when we uh, that's that's like getting true. called up to the big leagues <laughs> at that time. So. Yeah, I was in the double A, I guess. All right. <laughs> Ten things you didn't know about the Mass. What's next? Number four. What's the original meaning for mingling of water and wine at Mass? Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. So um, so you'll see at Mass, um, priest or deacon, if deacon's there, it's his duty to, when the chalice is prepared, that a drop or a couple of drops of water are mingled. And the priest or, or the deacon says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So it's really, it's a remembrance of the Christmas mystery that Christ took on our human nature. God has become one with man so that man can become one again with God. So that's the symbolic meaning of it now. It used to be in the early days of the church that people would bring, literally would bring the gifts for the mass from home. They would bring gifts for the poor as well. So they would provide the bread and the wine. The deacon would actually have to take the wine and he would sample it on the side table to see how strong it was. Now, um, I say this because, and what confirms this is I was in, uh, this past June was in uh, the Holy Land. We were in Sepphoris outside, I remember you were there. So Sepphoris outside of Nazareth, and there's a uh, pious tradition that uh, Joe Kim and Ann, Mary's parents may have lived there or that Joseph worked there. Anyway, it's an ancient town, great site for Roman ruins, but they had discovered what was a wine shop or a bar. And when they had discovered it, whatever, how many years back, there was still wine. They found vessels with wine going back to Roman times. That's an aged wine right there. Well, and they tested it, and they found the alcohol content was 35%. (laughs) Now, I guess that probably could have increased over time, but still the fact that the alcohol content, when it came from home, you didn't know. So the deacon would have to sample it. And then if it was too strong, he would cut it with water. So that is where that practical use came from. And it's been then retained and then adapted into a symbolic gesture. You know, you know I always think when Jesus turned water into wine, I would have loved to taste that. That had to be the greatest wine 
of all time. Well, sure. And you as a wine drinking wine oh, yeah. drinker, Amber, I mean, Definitely. that would be oh. And it's well, not I mean, like he con- consecrated it in like a box or something. Yeah, box it, it was not so box. You know it's got to yeah. be good. It wasn't, wasn't Franzia. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> I don't know what the alcohol content Jesus put on that one. Huh? Yeah, I don't know. All right. Ten things you know about the mass. What's next? Number five. Why do the bishop, priest, or deacons kiss the altar? Do you want to answer? Sure. I don't have to answer anything. <laughs> okay, or anything. No. I, mean, I could do it. Sure. Well, I shouldn't do that. I'm, I'm sure you know all the answers. He's, he's our guest. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those signs, uh, a visible sign when we go in there, we're giving reverence to the altar, which we recognize, you know, during Mass, the presence of Christ is there. We're That's the upon the altar where the great sacrifice of the Eucharist uh, takes place, where the bread and wine are transubstantiated in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So when we go in there, we, we it's a sign of humility. It's a sign of reverence towards Christ and uh, the, you know, as we're entering into that great mystery of what we're getting ready to do. Exactly, because the altar is a symbol of Christ. The altar has been, in most cases, consecrated, anointed with chrism. Does it, well, doesn't it has to be consecrated, right? It, it depends. Altars can't if they're not to be if they're not fixed if they're not permanent they can just be blessed. So so really really quick on that like for example when the cathedral was rededicated Cardinal George came down and he was he would he reconsecrate the altar then? no that was no uh that was uh that was archbishop lucas who presided over it the cardinal oh, okay. preached okay okay yeah, that's right but it's funny it was, i was the mc for that <laughs> and but it's funny you bring that up with the altar though because um at the beginning of the rite the celebrant the bishop goes around and he sprinkles holy water all over the church and at the end the last thing he was going to do was sprinkle the holy water on the altar. He ran it's out. It's purifying. No, and Cardinal, I'm standing there, and Cardinal George, God bless him, says to me, "Goes he's gonna he's, he's gonna sprinkle the altar, right? Because I'm talking about that in my homily. So he's got to be like, yes, your eminence, he's going to sprinkle the altar. Last thing Archbishop Lucas did, he came up in the sanctuary and then he sprinkled the altar. So the other reason we reference the altar, we venerate though, is because of the tradition of relics of relics being in the altar. It used to be that in the catacombs, we offered the mass over the tombs of the martyrs. And so after the the catacombs going out into the world, so that custom was continued where a relic of the martyrs was put into the altar. And so there's also, like at the cathedral, sealed into the altar underneath there are various relics of the saints. Do you know what you know which saints? Um yeah. Um <laughs> you do be all right. Well you know the true cross, uh Saint John Vianney, who's not a martyr. St. Charles Nwanga, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, St. Lawrence, St. George, um, St. Isaac Jogues. It's a pretty stellar lineup right yeah. there. Yeah, that's uh, all at the cathedral. Uh-huh. So uh, we tried to do, the, we put several relics in to, to represent different groups of the faithful throughout the diocese. So catechists, deacons, uh, religious priests, so, so do, faithful. Do all altars that are fixed, do they all have relics? Uh, altar uh, relics are an option, so okay. a fixed altar is supposed to be consecrated. Okay, just kind of, so it may yeah. or may not have relics. Right. In it. Like I know uh, Cathedral Saint Raymond and Joliet, which is where I'm originally from, they have relics of Saint Raymond in there, which which makes sense. So we have we have no relics of Mary for the Immaculate Conception in Cathedral. <laughs> well, no, there are no relics of Mary in there. No. Okay. All right. Ten things you know about the past. What's next? Number six. What was the purpose for the first church buildings? Well, the first church buildings were actually government buildings. Remember, the mass originally was set in the home, and so uh, with groups of the faithful. So 
you had the Emperor Constantine who legalized Christianity about the year 313. Then the Emperor Theodosius around the year 380 makes it the state religion. And so he then gifts certain things to the church. So this is when uh, bishops start wearing regalia. So they're given signs of their office. And then some empire buildings, imperial buildings called basilicas were given then to the church for the use of for use of worship, celebration of worship. So, so the whole notion of basilica originally is, we might say, a Roman office building. So that's actually the first churches were converted from secular use into the sacred. Now you mentioned uh, the first masses being at people's homes. And for, for you priests, that's one of, I feel like when I t- speak to other priests, one of your favorite experiences is to go into people's homes and offer mass. So is it just simple as call up your, your, your priest and say, Hey, I, I'd like a, a mass at, at, at my house or, or how, how does there something have to be? Well, how does that work? I think it's a custom that doesn't exist much anymore just because of time constraints and, sure. and ministry demands or that. But sometimes when people have a, a new home mm-hmm. and we go to bless it, that may be something we do. So as far as just offering mass in the home, as wonderful as that may be, usually it doesn't happen because mass is supposed to be technically okay. supposed to be celebrated in a sacred place, a place that has been, not that the home is not sacred, but a place that has been set aside for that. Now that may be a part of the blessing of a home. But it's not a custom that's used very often anymore, just sadly, just because of various reasons. Really quickly, it popped in my head. So, you know, the church is sacred. Is that, an, is that a big reason why the church for marriage, once you married inside a church? Correct. Because sacred moments, sacraments belong in sacred places, primarily the church. All right. And you mentioned basilicas. Um, Father House, do you know the most beautiful basilica in the United States? Do you know which one it is? Well, that's going to be your opinion. Uh-huh. I have a feeling you're going to say it's the Basilica at Notre Dame. Oh, it is. Oh, it yes. is. No. I actually think you can Google that. <laughs> have you never been to the Cathedral Basilica in St. Louis? I have, but still. <laughs> mm, I've, I've, never, I've never been to St. Louis, you can believe it. Never been to that one. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're listening, you've not been, go to the Cathedral Basilica in St. Louis, largest collection of mosaics in the Western world. Have you been there, Father Marty? I have not. I know. Field I, trip. Yes. And then let's go get a, a mufalata at the restaurant you were talking oh, about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A mufalata? Yeah, oh, my gosh. What I love is them. I've never, what is a oh, mufalata? Okay. I don't, <laughs> how do we get on this topic? I have no idea. I, 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 it's number seven. I think Louisiana, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's like yeah. a little sandwich yeah. thing. If you, I always get it at, uh, at Darcy's Pint here in Springfield. It's, it's got an olive spread on it and different like Italian meats on the. Yeah, yeah, that does bread. sound. Just the name itself sounds it's good. Really good. <laughs> All right, ten things you didn't know about the mass. What's next? Number, number seven. Why does the priest place a small piece of the host into the chalice? Well. In the early, early days of the church in Rome, it used to be a custom that on Sundays when the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, had Mass, he would, um, they would take some of the consecrated hosts, the Eucharist, and take it to the other churches in Rome, and they would commingle that. So, so you'll see at Mass today, the priest, uh, usually during the Lamb of God, he fractions a piece of the host and places it into the chalice, commingling the precious body with the precious blood. Does he, he makes the sign of the cross first no, over it? No? no, that's an old practice that belongs in the extraordinary form of the mass. Some priests may do that. Technically, they're not supposed to because it it's not a part of the new mass of the Novus Ordo okay. coming out of Vatican II. So 
that's where that custom comes from. It used to be in the early days that was taken out into the city of Rome as a sign of unity between the bishop and the other churches, of course. Time and circumstance, the church grew. That wasn't able to be done anymore. But once again, something that at one time had a it was symbolic then, but a practice has been retained, but in a different form and for different reasons. I want to ask you, Father Marty and Father Hutch, you can chime in too. What's it like being a priest during the transubstantiation? You know, it's, um, it is an amazing experience and it's not, it's not to say that every single mass that you, you, uh, you always feel something amazingly happen, you know, because it's, it's a, an outward sign of invisible grace. And we, we believe that even when we don't feel something or when we don't, uh, you know, feel like, oh, this is an extraordinary moment. That doesn't mean that it's any less of a moment because it, uh, the greatest miracle is occurring right before you. But there are those moments where you really stop and you uh, just stop and realize for a second, like, wow, first off, who am I to be here standing there doing this in, in persona Christi, who, you know, who called us to do this? And um, it's it's one of those just amazing experiences. It's just uh, surreal, I guess you'd mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Top 10 things you don't know about the Mass. What's next? Number eight. So Latin Rite Catholics use unleavened bread and Eastern Rite Catholics use leavened bread. Why is that? Okay, that's, I don't know actually the why, but it is a distinction. So in the, in the Mass, so in the Latin, in the West, or we call the Latin Rite, which is the largest of the 24 churches, the Roman church within the Catholic church, we have always used unleavened bread. In the East... So in the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and other forms of the Eastern Liturgy, they use a leavened bread. So I don't know where those distinctions came from. but And also, too, I mean, the use of leaven versus unleavened, it's not a question of validity. So we'll talk about matter that's invalid or valid. We would say it's illicit to use in the, in the West, in the Latin church, to use leavened bread. Now, the bread that's used for the Mass can only have two ingredients in it, though. It can only be flour and water. So when I, whether or not that's prepared in a way so that it has some substance, because you'll have substantial bread and you can use in, the, in, the, in the, the Latin church, but we're used to our form as the, the pressed host, the small cutout host. But yeah, so we have leaven in the East and unleavened in the West. So it's just it's one of those differences between cultures, but it's still under one church. Still Jesus. Yep. 10 things you know about the mass. What's next? Number nine. The dogmatic constitution on the sacred, sacred liturgy from Vatican II teaches us that Christ is present in five ways at mass. Tell us about that. <laughs> that was a big word there. It was. So, was. <laughs> so, so what are the five ways Jesus are, is Jesus is present? You know, when I wrote all these things out, these questions, I didn't think I was going to actually be talking about them. I, I could, thought they were going to be for something else. You so. want to jump on this one? Yeah, okay. okay. So when we talk about... You're uh, so knowledgeable, though. Yes, I, that's where I learn everything. I was with Father House for two, uh, two years at the cathedral as a young Padawan uh, priest. You know. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you pat him on the head, Father House? Good, yeah, good, good boy. He was, good, was good do job. as I say, not as I do. So... <laughs> But yeah, so when you when you uh, you look at mass, when you look at uh, mass going on in the church, and you see Christ present, he's present in five ways. So he's present in uh, first and foremost uh, the 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 word, the the scriptures, and uh, that are being read. You know, because we know that the scriptures are not just recorded words, but it's the living word of God. So when we hear the gospels, when we hear the scriptures, uh, God is present. Christ is present in, in the readings. 
he's present in the priest uh, that is uh, celebrating mass, who's in, I think I said the phrase earlier, in persona Christi, uh, is persona Christi Capitus, is that correct? Mm-hmm. In, uh, which which translate translate that for us. Okay, that means in the person of, of Christ as the like the leader, the as the presider, the head. So, the head. And so you in the, the priest's role doing that, uh, and by saying the prayers, uh, Christ is present in uh, through the priest and, and what he's doing. Uh, the Christ is, or he's present in the people gathered here in the church. Uh, you know, when the community gathers together, it tells us in scriptures where two or three are gathered in, uh, my name, you know, I'm with them. So, uh, what, how many have I said? You said three. four. <laughs> you said three. I, okay. So you said word, three. I'm oh, sorry. Word priest and people. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, obviously the most. Fa- Father House is looking at Father Marty like, that's all right. Let's, <laughs> is, is he going to get all five? Is he going to get them? Let's see. Am I going to fall short on one? Okay. Let's see. No. I, okay. The, the Eucharist. So Christ is obviously uh, present in what we believe. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Par excellence. Oh, par excellence. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Um, is that an inside joke? Yeah. <laughs> All then, the priests are laughing. Nobody yeah. else gets oh it. Yeah. And are like, yeah. We were, we were, we were yeah. both taught by Bishop Barron. That's right. So in that, so that's one of his favorite of his phrases is par excellence. So if you listen to Bishop Barron's series on Word on Fire and anything like that, you always hear par excellence. Hmm. So. All right. All right. You got four. Okay. Um, now my mind's all scattered. Now I'm nervous. I feel like I'm going to gain weight. Way, way, way to go, you two. You, you just, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Confetti will drop if you get this one. Yes, yes. <laughs> I went some kind of a okay. So um, we we have the people. We have the the here's scriptures. the house. Here's the people. The Open yes. the door. <laughs> what am I missing? The other sacraments. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's present. The other sacraments. So th- this dogmatic constitution is called Sacra Sanum Concilium. So I encourage people who Ooh, you said that with passion. I like it. Well, I encourage people who haven't read it to read it because so often in debates, conversations, people say, "Well, Vatican II said." A lot of times I get very, it's like, okay, let's hear what Vatican II supposedly said. Because a lot of times when people say Vatican II said, Vatican II didn't say it. It may have been taught or done, but it came after the fact. So Sacrosanum Concilium, read it. It's not very long. Um, you can Google it. It's out there on the internet. Get it wherever. So I'm it's, pretty sure I can't Google that. Maybe we'll link to it on our website. Well, the dog, <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to, what the second letter is. Well, in what the you dogmatic constitution on the liturgy. That's all you've got to remember. So in that, it talks about, and it's, it, yeah, it's rather short, but a lot of things that people claim that the documents Vatican II said to do or not to do, you won't find it anywhere in there. All right. 10 things you know about the mass. What's next? Number 10. How many liturgical rites are there in the Roman Catholic Church? <laughs> oh, liturgical rites. Okay. You... That should be seven, I believe. Did I put the answer down there? You did. It okay. is seven. Okay, Correct. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so there's seven, and I can't name them all. But the whole – so you've got within – we talk about in the Catholic Church, there's 24 churches. So you've got – the largest one is the Latin Church – and then you have the 23 Eastern churches. So you, then within those 24, you have different, different liturgical families. So you have the Latin Rite, which is predominantly in the West uh, or Western Europe, and then into North America, Australia, other places. But then you've got other liturgical families. So you would have um, – I'm scared to even venture into there because of different names that you can 
You can go on Wikipedia. Our friends at Wikipedia have all this because I think that's actually where I found it. But they're all under... All under the Holy Father, all under the Bishop of Rome. But it's a lot of this is linked to culture and to ethnicity. So you'll have like the Byzantine rites, so a lot of things from from Eastern Europe. Uh, You'll have um, the rites that come from India, so the Syro-Malabar and the Syro-Malankar, the Coptic rites from Egypt and North Africa. So you find those at various rites. And different... uh, Different ways of praying, different styles, common things, though, calling down the Holy Spirit, use of bread and wine, uh, the institution narrative of our Lord from the Last Supper. So valid Eucharist, completely valid Eucharist. You can always go there. Um, For my first summer of studying canon law in Washington, I would have mass myself, and then I would go and I would attend the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom at the Ukrainian church right behind the National Shrine, the National Basilica. So, uh, yeah, so... Is, what's what's is there one that's like orthodox where it's kind of like you 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 can go there if if you can't find any of the other well, that would be in the orthodox churches yeah okay. if you could, did not have access to a catholic church so and and in the east so, so explain that they're 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 in communion with us but the east is not not the orthodox so you had the great schism that happens in the 11th century and so you have this breaking in the east and then you have after a time in these different Eastern churches, groups of the faithful who decided to come back to union with with Rome, with the Bishop of Rome. And so then you have all these counterparts. So you have a, a Greek Orthodox Church, there's a Greek Catholic Church, there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, there's a Ukrainian Catholic Church, um, Russian Orthodox, Russian Catholic. So, but there's one group that never broke away, and they're very proud of that, and that's the Maronite Church in Lebanon. So they never broke union with the Holy See. So the Orthodox churches you can go to and receive communion if, if it's kind of like you can't if find you a Catholic. If you couldn't find a Catholic church, yeah. Okay. Now, they may have a different rule, though, whether or not they will admit you. But we would say yes, because we st- we the Orthodox sacraments are valid. So we recognize validity of uh, Orthodox orders. So if you're traveling, what, what's the indicator? You walk into one of these churches and you're like, okay, is this... One of the ones that, I mean, like, is there something that you can look in a book and say? As long as it uh, says Catholic, you should be covered. fine. Well, <laughs> Theoretically. Well, not every church that calls itself so. Catholic <laughs> is in union with the Pope, though. So different things. So I, I well, some of these churches, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. I mean, everybody has different styles of things in that. So, I mean, you used to be in, to go to Catholic church, you'd look for tabernacle and then a red sanctuary lamp and a crucifix. That doesn't always follow anymore in our churches, sure. even even in our own our culture, our own experience. So, yeah. So you just have to go to our friend Google. Maybe they can tell you. <laughs> All right. About. We got a whole new insight on the mass. So Father House, Father Marty, thank you so much. This has been Dive Deep. If you'd like more podcasts, go to dive.org slash podcast. We'll see you next time.